You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 139, The Meigs Raid on Sag Harbor, Long Island. Today we return to British-occupied Long Island. The British, you will recall, occupied Long Island along with New York City in late 1776 when General Howe and Admiral Howe led an invasion force. The British put most of their forces in New York City itself and spent most of 1777 focused on New Jersey and the expansion of more colonial territory brought back under the authority of the Crown. Before there were any bridges between Manhattan Island and Long Island, the two communities were not as tied together. There were a great many who lived in western Long Island who regularly interacted with New York City via a ferry. Most of Long Island, at least the part that had been settled, was used for farming and grazing. I've not seen an authoritative census from the time, but I'd guess the population of the entire island was between 15,000 and 20,000, compared to around 3 million today. Many Patriot residents of Long Island had fled to Connecticut after the British occupation. Those who remained did not actively resist British rule. Most signed loyalty oaths, which New York Governor Tryon required of all subjects. For the most part, the island accepted British control and the people got back to living their lives. There are some stories about local attacks on the regulars at times, but for me most of these sound like they're criminal attacks under the guise of war rather than actual military operations. Some, however, may have been motivated by patriotism. Not all was back to normal, though. The island remained under martial law. Tory regiments recruited young men for the king's service. Across Long Island Sound in Connecticut, a Patriot stronghold threatened to challenge British occupation at some point. Many Patriots from Long Island had joined regiments in Connecticut and were eager to bring Long Island under Patriot control again. In Connecticut, many refugees from Long Island found themselves with little more than what they could carry. Most farmers at the time had little cash and relied on their land to grow crops for trade. Since they had to abandon most of their property, they came to Connecticut destitute, relying on the charity of others. Some of them wanted to return to Long Island to collect some of their property. A few were able to get permission to return temporarily, but most could not. Even for those who did get permission, the risk of robbery on the roads was high. Over the winter of 1776-1777, the British and the Americans were engaged in what we called the Forage War. Because the British could not collect forage in New Jersey, collecting forage on Long Island became much more critical. 
Connecticut, as I said, remained a Patriot stronghold, and Long Island a Loyalist stronghold, with only the relatively narrow waters of Long Island Sound separating these two enemies. In command of the Continental Forces in Connecticut was General Samuel Parsons. I've mentioned Parsons a few times, but just a quick reminder. Parsons began the war as a Connecticut Patriot politician and militia officer. Way back in episode 59, then-Colonel Parsons had met with then-Captain Benedict Arnold on the road to Cambridge just after the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Arnold told Parsons about the importance of the cannons at Fort Ticonderoga, and it was Parsons who, after leaving Arnold, decided to organize and provide colonial funds for the mission to capture Fort Ticonderoga using Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys. Colonel Parsons also participated in the Siege of Boston and took a commission in the Continental Army. Some sources say that he fought at Bunker Hill, but as far as I can tell, he never actually made it onto the battlefield. It appears that he was part of the reserve forces that were held back during the battle. Colonel Parsons moved to New York with the rest of the army after the British evacuated Boston. In August 1776, Congress commissioned him a brigadier general. He was the Connecticut candidate who prevented Colonel Arnold from being promoted in that round. Now, General Parsons oversaw the failed mission of the Turtle submarine, which was supposed to blow up the British fleet in New York Harbor. He also fought at White Plains and joined the raid on Fort Independence in January 1777. Following the Danbury Raid, which I discussed in episode 135, Washington gave Parsons an independent command in Connecticut. Washington was concerned that the British might attempt another raid into the state. General Parsons was eager to do more, though, than simply sit around and wait for another raid. He wanted to launch a counter-raid. To prepare for a raid on Long Island, General Parsons tapped Colonel Return Jonathan Meigs. I have to pause here for a moment to explain how this guy got a name like Return Jonathan. According to family lore, when his father was courting his mother, she refused his proposal of marriage, so he got on a horse and rode off. Either she had a change of heart or had just been playing hard to get, but she ran after him shouting, Return, Jonathan! The couple did get married and thought it would be fun to name their son Return Jonathan in remembrance of the event. So this wasn't some nickname that he picked up during his life. His parents actually saddled him with that name at his birth. Incidentally, Meigs passed on the name to his son, Return Jonathan Meigs Jr., who many years after the Revolution became Senator and Governor of Ohio. It was passed on to a third generation as well, Return Jonathan Meigs III, the grandson of the man we're discussing today, married the daughter of a Cherokee chief and was forced to march the Trail of Tears with his in-laws decades later. But I'm getting way, way ahead of our story. Meigs Sr. had served as a colonel in the militia before the war. He had a thriving mercantile business and was married to his second wife in 1774, following the death of his first wife a year earlier. After Lexington and Concord, Captain Meigs led a company of militiamen to participate in the Siege of Boston. After the Continental Army formed, 
Meigs became a major in the 2nd Continental Regiment. He volunteered to cross the wilderness under Benedict Arnold to attack Quebec in 1775, and was among the minority who actually made it through to the Battle of Quebec. There, like most of those who did make it through, he was captured and held prisoner for several months. Despite the many hardships of the campaign, Meeks kept a journal of the mission, which is a wonderful primary source for the events of Arnold's march and the Battle of Quebec. In May 1776, Meeks was paroled and able to return home via Halifax. However, under the conditions of his parole, he could not rejoin the war until exchanged for a captured British officer. It wasn't until January 1777 that he was formally exchanged and could rejoin the war effort. In February, Meigs received promotion to lieutenant colonel, and in May got bumped up to full colonel to take command of the 6th Connecticut Regiment. Upon taking this command, he was tasked by General Parsons to launch the retaliatory raid against Long Island. Now, Long Island's Sag Harbor had been under British occupation since just after the British seized Long Island in August 1776. A force of 200 Continentals was originally sent to Sag Harbor to prevent the British control of the entire island. When the British sent a larger force out to occupy the area in September, the small and isolated 200 Continentals fled across Long Island Sound to Connecticut without a fight. The British then required all civilians to take an oath of loyalty to the king. Of the 35 families living in Sag Harbor at the time, 21 took the oath. The other 14 fled to Connecticut. Because Sag Harbor was a port on the eastern end of Long Island, where men or supplies could be taken in or out, the regulars maintained a presence there along with British patrol ships in the Sound to make sure the Patriots could not make use of it. Now, you have to remember, Long Island is really, well, long. It was over 100 miles from New York City, where the main British garrison was located, to the outpost at Sag Harbor. 100 miles was several days' march at the time. As the British prepared for a spring offensive, their focus was to the south. General Howe had at one time hoped he would launch multiple invasions, including one against New England. Instead, after receiving disappointing numbers of reinforcements over the winter, he focused on taking Philadelphia. Therefore, Sag Harbor became less important as a jumping-off point. Howe also wanted to take most of his regulars with him to Philadelphia, leaving mostly local Loyalist militia supplemented by Hessians to defend New York. So, by May 1777, there were only about 70 Loyalist militia occupying Sag Harbor under the command of Captain James Raymond. The Loyalists had an earthenworks defensive line at the edge of town to use in the event of an attack. They built housing for the garrison on nearby Meeting House Hill, which also gave a good view of the area, including the bay to the north of them. According to later accounts, the British, who had originally built the defensive works on Meeting House Hill, had dug their entrenchments in the Meeting House's graveyard, resulting in the desecration of many graves. The Loyalists also had a 12-gun schooner, 
and a dozen smaller gunboats manned by about 40 Loyalist sailors. Their main purpose was to prevent smugglers from moving anything across Long Island Sound. These ships supplemented the British Navy, which also patrolled the Sound on the lookout for any unauthorized ships. Sag Harbor served as a depot for British forage and other supplies. Remember, this was near the end of the forage war in New Jersey, when Patriots had been trying to deny forage and food for the Army's horses and men. There were tons of hay, crane, and other supplies stockpiled at Sag Harbor. In preparation for the raid, Colonel Meigs hand-selected the soldiers from various units. Meigs picked 234 officers and men to assemble as a temporary unit for this one operation. Among those selected was a local so that Meigs was able to get intelligence about the area. Sergeant L. Nathan Jennings of the 1st Connecticut told Meigs that he had grown up in Sag Harbor. He was intimately familiar with the area. Jennings had been among the many patriots who had fled Long Island rather than take the oath of loyalty to the king once the British arrived. The 23-year-old had signed up with the Continental Army and was eager to assist. He provided details about the best places for landing and about paths into the village that avoided the main roads. On May 21st, the men selected for the mission moved from New Haven to nearby Guilford, Connecticut, as the launch point for crossing the Sound. There, they waited for two days until the weather calmed down enough to make the crossing. Finally, on the afternoon of May 23rd, the stormy weather had subsided. The assault force crossed Long Island Sound in 13 whale boats, which are basically large rowboats. They were also accompanied by three small sloops with sails. The force landed on Southhold, which is along the North Fork of Eastern Long Island. If you're not familiar with the geography in eastern Long Island, it is separated into a North Fork and a South Fork, which is divided by Peconic Bay. Southhold, as I said, is on the North Fork. Sag Harbor was on the South Fork. If the men were to march all the way around the bay, it would be about 45 miles of marching, far more than they could do in a single day. Instead, they carried 11 of the whale boats overland to Peconic Bay. They then rowed across the bay and landed on the South Fork about four miles from Sag Harbor around midnight. The raiders had to leave some of the men with the ships at Southhold and more with the whale boats that were tied up a few miles from town. So only about 170 men of the original 234 continued on to Sag Harbor to engage the enemy. After landing, it took the soldiers about two hours to form up and make the night march to Sag Harbor, arriving around 2 a.m. on the morning of the 24th. Meigs divided his men into two groups. The main force of about 130 men would assault the defenses at Meeting House Hill. The other 40-man team, led by a Captain Troop, moved down the harbor to destroy all the ships and supplies there. Meigs himself led the main force on Meeting House Hill. He ordered his men to attack the guards with bayonets and avoid any gunfire that might awaken the main Loyalist garrison. According to a report compiled later by the Sag Harbor Village historian, 
the raiders first captured a guardhouse, which had been the town's schoolhouse before the occupation, and took prisoner the guards there. They next occupied the barracks, where they surprised the sleeping soldiers and captured them without firing a shot. From there, they moved on to capture the Loyalist garrison commander, Captain Raymond, and his staff, who were sleeping in a commandeered home on Main Street. It was only after capturing Raymond that the Continentals assaulted the main defenses on Meeting House Hill. That is where the fighting resulted in the death of six Loyalists who resisted in hand-to-hand fighting. Meigs, in his report, simply said that his men captured the garrison without much more detail. He noted that there was only one shot fired, so the men had been effective with the bayonet. The raiding party captured 53 prisoners, with no casualties among the Continentals. The smaller force went to the harbor, where they reportedly destroyed 12 boats docked there by burning them. They also burned the warehouses that contained the hay, grain, and other supplies being held for the British Army. The fires alerted a small British 12-gun frigate that was anchored just offshore. It opened fire on the Continentals. The raiders continued destroying the ships in the harbor and the warehouses at the docks. They spent about 45 minutes completing the destruction while under fire from the ship's cannons. This contingent also captured another 37 prisoners in the harbor area. Colonel Meigs, having secured the garrison on Meeting House Hill, deployed some of his soldiers to return fire on the frigate in order to give some cover to the men in the harbor. There's no record of any British casualties on the ship. Given the distance, it's unlikely they hit anyone that far away. We know the British cannons were ineffective, as none of them at the harbor were killed or wounded while going about their work. Firing into the dark from some distance was probably more of an effort to scare the enemy rather than do any actual damage. Meigs reported killing a total of six of the enemy. Now, I think this happened on Meeting House Hill, but it's not entirely clear whether some of the casualties may have taken place at the harbor as well. Given, sadly, the sketchy details, we know only that there was some hand-to-hand fighting that night, resulting in some enemy deaths. The Continentals, apparently, made it through with none of their own killed or wounded. Within a few hours after first reaching the town, the raiders had completed their work and still, before dawn, marched back to their whaleboats with 90 prisoners. Now, some accounts note that they took 99 prisoners in total, It could be that several escaped, or possibly that some of the wounded were counted who later died. It could also be that the accounts of 99 prisoners was simply mistaken. Uh, The accounts on return to Connecticut, though, list only 90 prisoners. Whatever the exact number, the raiders and their prisoners rode back to the North Fork. They carried their boats across the North Fork and then back into Long Island Sound, reaching Connecticut safely around 2 p.m. on the 24th. The entire raid and return, which covered about 90 miles of land and water, took about 24 hours. The Continentals captured almost all of the enemy stationed there and made it back to their whaleboats without any casualties. And I guess those whaleboats were pretty large, since the full contingent of raiders plus all the prisoners rode back to Connecticut in them. 
the Patriots deemed the raid a success. The Meigs raid was more of a psychological victory than anything else. Loyalists on Long Island were unnerved by the raid and felt less secure. It's not entirely clear from contemporary records, but it does not appear that the British reoccupied Sag Harbor after the raid or put any outpost so far east that it could be an isolated target for another raid. Instead, the British built Fort Franklin, named after New Jersey's royal governor William Franklin, not his father, the traitor Benjamin Franklin. Fort Franklin was established about 70 miles west of Sag Harbor, much closer to the main British force in and around New York City. The British properly garrisoned Fort Franklin to defend against any raids. They also maintained an armed camp at Oyster Bay under the command of Lieutenant Colonel John Graves Simcoe. That was a collection point for supplies collected on Long Island for the use of the Army. Again, this collection point at Oyster Bay was many miles to the west, much closer to the city. By all appearances, the British abandoned any permanent garrison out near the eastern tip of Long Island. Back in Connecticut, Colonel Meigs became a hero. The Continental Congress awarded him a ceremonial sword as thanks for his efforts, one of only 15 awarded during the war. Next week, General Howe attempts to provoke another fight with General Washington in northern New Jersey, resulting in the Battle of Short Hills. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. We have a new member of the Robert Morris Circle this month. Michael Mulhern has been a supporter for several months now, but this month stepped up his support to the Robert Morris level on Patreon. Even though, as he says, he roots for the other side, Michael is a fan of the show. He is from Australia, where they still haven't quite felt the need to abolish the crown yet. As my first international supporter at this level, Michael is also going to force me to figure out how to send his monthly Revolutionary War flag magnet using the overseas mail. Michael actually appears on his own podcast, the Retro Computing Roundtable, which you can find at rcrpodcast.com. Since I got into personal computing myself in the 1980s, I found the discussion of classic computer systems quite interesting. 
Again, a link to the website for his podcast is rcrpodcast.com. And if that's too hard for you to type into your browser, there is a link to it on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. A few weeks ago, I accidentally published episode 138 about two weeks early. I had been trying to load an episode or two early since I need to take some time off in March and wanted to make sure I have a new episode ready to go each week. I made an edit to that episode, which caused it to be published immediately instead of at the scheduled time. I didn't notice the screw-up for about eight hours, by which time over a thousand of you had downloaded the new episode. So, if you got episode 138 before you got 137, I apologize, that was my bad. As I said, I'm going away two weekends this month, March 2020. I will be at History Camp Boston the week after this show releases, where I will be on a panel discussion about using new media to bring history to new audiences. The weekend after that, I will be attending the American Revolution Conference in Williamsburg, Virginia, with friend of the show, Roger Williams, who runs 10crucialdays.org. Also, I frequently mention Patreon supporters of this podcast who make the commitment to give monthly support to the show. Many of you also opt to make one-time gifts to my PayPal account, which I also greatly appreciate. I did want to give a shout-out to Howard Boone, David Price, Carrie Robeson, and Paul Kallenberger, who have all recently sent particularly generous gifts to help keep this show afloat. There are, of course, links to both Patreon and PayPal on my website and blog. So this week, we looked at the Meigs raid on Sag Harbor, Long Island. It was pretty well executed, albeit a relatively minor raid for the Americans and it was one that helped to weaken British control of eastern Long Island. Meigs would serve honorably for another four years before retiring honorably in 1781. As I mentioned in the main show, he would move on to Ohio, where his son and namesake would become governor. His grandson would marry a Cherokee princess and partake in the Trail of Tears. Another descendant of his brothers would become General Montgomery Meigs, who served as quartermaster of the Union Army during the Civil War, and who was instrumental in the creation of Arlington Cemetery. The story of the Meigs family is an interesting look at the early history of the United States. If you want to read more, my book recommendation this week is The Quiet Patriot, Colonel Return Jonathan Meigs by Richard A. Mason. This book is a great look at the life of Meigs, particularly his role in the Revolution and as an early pioneer of Ohio. It also includes the Meigs Journal, which Meigs kept during the Wilderness Campaign with Benedict Arnold in 1775. This is an independent paperback without the backing of any academic institution or professional publisher, so don't expect perfection, but I'm glad someone is covering this important and interesting life. I don't know much about the author, Richard Mason. This appears to be his only book, and it was first published in 2010. But if you want to read more about Meigs, The Quiet Patriot is a good place to start. For my online recommendation this week, I want to recommend another free ebook about someone else I introduced this week. 
The Life and Letters of Samuel Holden Parsons, Major General in the Continental Army and Chief Judge of the Northwest Territory, 1737-1789, by Charles Hall. General Parsons is another interesting character from the war who is largely ignored by history. As the title suggests, he also goes west after the war and has an interesting life there as well. Sadly not a long one, as he froze to death in an early November snow in what is today western Pennsylvania. The book is about his life and also includes most of his known correspondence. It was first published in 1905. Because of that age, it is in the public domain and is available as a free ebook on archive.org. You can search for it there, or I have a link to it on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.